IndieCast is presented by Uproxx's Indie Mixtape. Hello everyone and welcome to IndieCast. On this show we talk about the biggest indie news of the week, we review albums and we hash out trends. In this episode we're going to revisit the IndieCast Hall of Fame in order to induct four more unsung classic album. My name is Stephen Hyden, and I'm joined by my friend and co-host, Ian Cohen. <laughs> Ian, how are you? You know, Steve, I'm not just, you know, your friend and co-host of IndieCast, but I also consider myself, like, a fan of IndieCast. I've always... Oh, wow. Loved, I've always loved when artists, like, sometimes you'll see in publications, they'll ask an artist about, like, their top 10 albums of the year, and I always love when they put their own one in there. I find that to be Absolutely. honest. Absolutely. Or at the very least, it's like, come on, man, you put your life into this. Have have some confidence. But, um, you know, the way this manifests for me as far as IndieCast is like, I get a little jealous of like our readers who can submit mailbag questions because like I all like I have these like ones that are just like, you know, wouldn't warrant 15 minutes of conversation with us. But I always just wanted to hear what you think. So I'm like tempted to like do some I've been tempted to make some like burner email accounts so I could like you know, be, I don't know, like Jake from Columbus, Ohio, or... I think we know. can do that. I, I, <laughs> I think we can we can write into our own show. Why not? You know, I think that would be a cool meta trick to play. Actually, if I was going to submit a uh, IndieCast listener question, I would ask you mm. what you thought about the Morrissey episode of The Simpsons. Because I know... There's a couple sub-questions to this, because... First of all, I want to know if you saw the episode, because I know that you are, on your Twitter account, you are a Simpsons memer uh, non-parel. Like, you are the top <laughs> Simpsons memer, as far as I'm concerned. So I was wondering what you thought of the episode, and sub-question to that would be, do you think that this is in some way the Simpsons acknowledging the uh, devotion that it seems that people in the punk and emo scene have for the Simpsons, like we're gonna do some Morrissey jokes <laughs> for the benefit of these, uh, like this subsection of our audience. I mean, what, what it actually plays into my question, like the one that I had thought of quite literally before this episode drop, of like how much of a fan of somebody do you have? Like how much of a like what percentage of someone's work do you have to be to still consider yourself a fan? Because you know, with The Simpsons, like, I'm season 3 through 11, and there's, like, 33 that I, like, I've seen maybe a third of the total Simpsons, uh, and yet... 33 seasons? I it, It's in the 30s. And oh, my God. Yeah. They, well, think insane. about it. Think about it, man. I mean, like, they were hitting double digits in the 90s, and here we are. Yeah. And... I mean... Has anyone watched all like? Oh no, there's got to be out. There's there's got to be many people out there. But I mean, when I think when when I think about your question as to like, is this an indication that it's just straight up fan service, and you know, Simpsons writers are acknowledging that in the punk and emo world, who like for whom Morrissey is, you know, clearly like a godfather in some ways. I don't know if they if they. I think that were true, they'd realize that like Morrissey is just pretty much untouchable to the. Like, untouchable, not in a good way, but to the point where, like, Morrissey can, you know, 
uh, dish back at them for calling him fat and a meat eater. You know, I don't know which one insults right. him more. And people are like, yeah, I think Morrissey's the asshole in this situation. Like, um, Am I wrong, though? Like, I feel like I felt a little bad for Morrissey yeah. just because they, like, they did the fat jokes on there, which yeah. I feel like that's a bridge too far. If you want to make fun of... Uh, you know, him being a xenophobe or a racist or whatever, that's obviously fair game. The fat stuff, I kind of thought, like, this this feels like family guy level type jokes at Morrissey. So I'm, I'm going to defend Morrissey slightly on those grounds. I think that's a little mean to go that route. That's about all the bandwidth I have to protect, you know, Mor- Morrissey. Like, I mean... It's with with this with with the Simpsons and like Morrissey like this whole this whole lead up and the release of it. It's like I think of there was this experimental guitarist who did this orchestra of like four hundred guitars. I, I now if I were Riley Walker, I'd remember the guy's name offhand. I looked it up. It's Rich Chatham. But I mean this this episode to me was like four hundred people all making the same two jokes. Which is, you know, you quote this joke isn't funny anymore, or you say like I haven't cared about any of these people since uh, 1999, and it was just it was there was there was just such a depressing finality to this, you know, whole thing. It's like oh, this like Morrissey in 2021. I mean, granted, it it might it, you know it's like an SNL skit, but like extended to 30 minutes. Or twenty two. Well, minutes, and as like, it were. I just wonder, like, how how famous is Morrissey outside oh, of like the oh, alt rock, indie rock? Like, like, how is that joke gonna land with like most people? Well, you know, I, the Smiths have been around for a long time, obviously, but I I still don't feel like Morrissey is that famous that people would just recognize that immediately. Okay, but maybe so I'm wrong about that. I I, I think that with like you cannot underestimate like how many how important if not Morrissey is just like the Smiths slash Morrissey even just as like um an institution if you were to get Morrissey to play live shows in L well that's actually I'm not sure about that because like the tour the last tour was kind of a mess but I remember like it was not that long ago that he played FYF Fest, um, and it was the draw for him uh, compared to, say, Frank Ocean or Kanye, who was I know Kanye was playing that night. Yeah, that, that was a good one. Uh, but I'm yeah, it, it was it was about e- it was about equal, you know. Uh, I'm gonna pull the Southern California card here, though. Uh, that well, that you should <laughs> because he's obviously gonna draw huge there. But is he? Would he draw huge in like Topeka, Kansas, or something? I mean, that's something I'm not. That uh, I'm not that sure of. With, with yeah, maybe Morrissey, maybe that's what he point. needs. Maybe that's what he needs to do. You know, rebuild his image doing like you know the tough like Midwest circuits, doing the colleges, doing the uh, <laughs> you know do, doing the comeback tour in Topeka, Kansas, and and Wichita well, and uh, Omaha. I mean, may I mean like Red State America? That might be his future. Like him and Jordan oh, Peterson God. can do like a double bill. You know, that that could work for Morrissey. I mean, to, to go back to your question, you were saying like how much uh, of uh, of someone's work do you have to know or be familiar with in order to consider yourself a fan? I mean, the Simpsons to me, they are a lot like a lot of nineties bands where people love the early records and then they, you know, those bands keep making records and people aren't into them. I mean, I don't know if we're going to venture 
uh, into Weezer discourse again next <laughs> no. month because there's like another stupid oh, Weezer God. album coming out. I, I, even I, who have, I feel like I have more uh, you know, endurance than most with Weezer conversations. Like I have no energy to talk yeah. about another bullshit Weezer record. But like I kind of put them in the same camp as the Simpsons in my mind of yeah. like, I loved this in the 90s. And now I feel embarrassed by it, uh, you know, by the later yeah. work of this thing. Um, I feel like that's true of The Simpsons. I mean, The Simpsons, I loved so much in yeah, the 90s. It's, 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 it was, I still love it to this day, man. Like, at work, people are just like, wow, you must be, like, the biggest Simpsons fan on Earth. And then I tell them about, I actually went to a Simpsons trivia, like, once or twice and just got my ass kicked, man. Like, I am not... Like I'm like upper percentile, but like there's just a com- there's just so many other levels above me, you know. I, maybe I'm just like as big of a Simpsons fan as you can be and still like function <laughs> in like a, in normal society. I just feel like if you're gonna like catch a Simpsons episode in reruns or or whatever, I get if, if people still do that. I don't know. Maybe they don't. Everything's on demand now. But I just feel like the pool is so diluted. Now yeah. with like later seasons, like the like the the, the seasons I don't care about far outnumber the seasons mm. that are good. Again, yeah. to go back to the Weezer example, it'd be like if you put all the Weezer albums on a playlist and you put it on shuffle, the likelihood you're going to hear something awful is much higher than yeah. hearing you know my name is Jonas or something. I feel like that's the case with the Simpsons. I don't know, maybe uh they'll do some like Robert Smith jokes later this. Yeah. Season. <laughs> yeah, I'd like to see although they should defend Robert Smith. I think Robert yeah. Smith is clearly Yeah, they already did the South Park episode. I don't th- I I don't know if there's been anyone who's done both. Is South Park still on? Oh, absolutely. Oh man. Yeah, and they're still doing who, like who pandemic they're still doing pandemic episode. Like, I mean, they're still like very topical. So, um, oh, no, people just, watch this. Meant- people watch this stuff, man. Like, look, man, we 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 do this podcast where we talk about bands that like ninety nine point five percent of people will never hear or like have heard of. Like South Park still had like its fan base is way more visible, you know. I suppose I I, I imagine <laughs> that they're just doing like cancel culture jokes. Oh no, like, that's exactly right. what they're doing. So <laughs> that would be like that's like you know they're. It's Saturday. Like, it's sort of like Saturday Night Live in that regard. So oh man, I I just made myself so depressed talking about this man. Like the Smiths, <laughs> Weezer, the Simpsons, South Park, like all this stuff that like was so formative in my. Uh, teens is now just uh, like I, I, I it's, we got to change subjects or I'm just going to be too depressed to go on it's just going to be like me doing 40 minutes of silence yeah it's tough I mean do we want to do a shout out to uh, Jim Steinman yeah we got to we're, we're talking about the our teen years like meatloaf man like I think that in the in the 90s history people talk about like how you know Nirvana was the like, meteor that killed all the uh hair metal dinosaurs and yet you have like aerosmith get a grip like just selling like tens 10 million copies and also meatloaf's come back i mean but out of hell too i mean yeah we should maybe give a little background here for people who don't know what we're talking about (laughs) jim Jim steinman uh, he's a he's a a songwriter uh he passed away this week at the age of 73 he is known as the writer of the uh Bad Out of Hell albums for Meatloaf. He also wrote Total Eclipse of the Heart, uh, Karaoke Classic. Ah. Um, there's a lot of other songs that he wrote, but those are like the the big, you know, 
first paragraph of the obituary work right there. Um, and you're right. I mean, Bad Out of Hell comes out in 77, I believe. And then it's like 15 years later, they make Bad Out of Hell 2. And then there's that song, I'll, I would do anything for love, but I won't do that. Mm-hmm. In, the, in the heart of like alt-rock being dominant, the grunge revolution... And you're right. Like you know, we we like these clean narratives about Kurt Cobain coming in and like poison spontaneously combusting and disappearing because yeah. hair metal's dead. But no, people still wanted these like really overdramatic <laughs> Broadway type rock ballads with super long titles. I mean that <laughs> is transcendent no matter the era. It's like if he had lived in, because I think there was like a Bad Out of Hell three. I don't know there if there was, was like a fourth. There, uh, there was definitely a third that did not have the same impact. Yeah, it was like the Fast and the Furious of classic rock albums, though. There, yeah. were, you know, there was a franchise uh, that was very successful. And uh, yeah, Jim Steinman passed away. Uh, so pour one out for him yeah. uh, here uh, from you know early 90s to the late 70s and, and beyond. Um I wanted to ask you something quick, too, before we get to our mailbag. Did you happen to watch that Tame Impala uh, live stream? No, but I heard that, like... Uh, in her speaker, 10th anniversary? I heard that Kevin Parker and the guys, you know, the the other members of Tame Impala, whose names we all know, uh, just kind of blinded us with luxury. <laughs> Apparently, it was just, like, in the nicest imaginable house. Oh, my God. Yeah. This house is crazy. It, <laughs> it, 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 apparently, it's the it's like a house studio, like recording studio. It's yeah. where he made Inner Speaker, and he also, I guess, made parts of Currents there, too. Oh. And then uh, someone sent me a, an article about this. He bought this house, I mm. think it was last year, mm. for like $2.75 million. It's in, is, it's in Australia. Okay. I was about to say, is know, it, if it's in LA or if it's... Because I don't even know if he could you know rock that kind of house in LA. <laughs> I mean, yeah, because it was like on the... It looks like it's on like a bluff. Yeah. On like the edge of the ocean with like all this green light. It's like an unbelievable view. It's like a log cabin looking house. Just just incredible. Like, what's the Australian form of money? Is it dollars or is it like cougarans or, or uh, you know, <laughs> dope or, uh, I don't know, know, dude. Kangaroo bucks. I, I don't know what the. I don't oh, know great. Now we're getting, now we've insulted the Australians. This is just like that Simpsons episode. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I love Australia. Australia is the best. But um, it was a one of the better live streams, though, that I've oh, seen yeah. uh, during this pandemic period. And um, it was pretty awesome to see Tame Impala as like a rock band. Yeah. Because they're playing like these early songs. And, you know, Kevin Parker playing a lot of guitar. He's like shredding a little bit, extending, jamming them yeah. out. Uh, made me excited to see Tam Impala, who will be all over the festival scene, yeah. as we talked about in a previous episode. Probably not playing like that. Nah. No, ch- no, ch- no Chugal. No, no adjacent. No, no Chugal. It'll just be Slow Rush, yeah. uh, you know, make <laughs> jams, which is pretty cool, too. Um, let's go to our mailbag segment. Yes, the real mailbag, people. Yes. Or it could be... Ian or I in disguise. You never know. Yeah. I mean, now we've sort of floated that out for like the QAnon 
subset of our audience, uh, the <laughs> conspiracy theorists, they're going to be doubting the validity of all of our questions mm. from now on. Um, this question comes from Paul in Barrie, Ontario, Ontario, Canada. Mm. So another Canadian. Canadians love the show, which yes. is great. That's why I'm not going to make any jokes about Canada. Um, although I don't know the form of money in Canada either. Do you know the Canadian dollar? Is it called the dollar? Probably. It's called maple leaves? I don't, I don't know. know. Um, that's a benign joke. That's a yeah. benign joke. It's, yeah. it's kind of a dumb joke, too. Uh, yeah. Anyway, while I, appreci- while I appreciate both of your work very much, nothing frustrates me more than your, he's talking to me, <laughs> your view that Oasis is superior to Blur or your recent interest in collecting cassettes. Now, let's pause for a moment. Yeah. Ian, you're with me, right? Like, you prefer Oasis to Blur, right? I or actually I don't. I think if you, we, we look at the overall picture, I would say that I prefer the music of Blur uh, more, but, like, it's kind of close. I think that um, I... I, I would say I would rather listen to Oasis now, but like I think that Blur has like the better catalog. This is not me trying to be sneaky and like give a non-answer, but no, I mean I think that <laughs> is uh, probably a fairly common view that uh, you know yeah. Blur has a more consistent discography. I think you'd also have to concede that Oasis has higher peaks. Yeah, like nothing, nothing is touching. Do you know what I mean? Or Champagne Supernova. Uh, but then again, like Blur's Think Tank, like that to me is like a classic indie rock Hall of Famer, maybe in the future. Oh, man. Well, yeah. okay. We'll see about that. It'll be a fun <laughs> thing to talk about. Also, Paul, I love the fact that you're haunted by me collecting cassettes. Yeah. I I, I like that this is, there's nothing that bothers you more than that, uh, which uh, I love. Anyway, that brings me to my question. Steve's wacky cassette collection aside... <laughs> The cassettes are not wacky. I, I'm not collecting, you know, like uh, like Weird Al tapes or anything. I, I, actually, I do have one yeah. Weird Al tape. Uh, even worse, which is one of his finest albums. Um, anyway, do you guys still keep physical media? Do you have a format of preference? Do you, do, do you hang on to old CDs or are you into vinyl? Uh, I enjoy vinyl, but I have so many CDs from over the years that I just can't part with them. Curious what your current relationship is with physical media. And Steve, why cassettes? Um, well, I feel like I should probably answer this question first since he's calling me out here, uh, directly. Um, you know, I'll say like, I like physical media. Um, I have vinyl, I have CDs and I've started collecting cassettes recently. And fortunately I live in a house where I can like actually store all of these things because I know for some people, if you live in a bigger city, you live in an apartment, you can't really have physical media because it's you don't have the space for it. But fortunately, I, I don't have that problem. I'll say that CDs to me are still the best sounding media, especially if you're playing it uh, in a car. Um, as far as cassettes go, you know, I started collecting them just because I like them aesthetically as objects. I like holding them. I like looking at them. I have a nostalgic connection to this format because it's the first format I ever bought music in. So, you know, a lot of the tapes I've been buying are tapes that I would have bought in the late 80s, like when I was 11 or 12 years old and and buying music. So I feel like this is probably the onset of my uh, midlife crisis. You know, that's probably why I'm doing this, but it's cheaper than buying a sports car. So (laughs) I feel like I can justify it on that. I have to say, too, that like as far as vinyl goes... I'm a little annoyed with vinyl at this point. I think I probably talked about this on this show. I think vinyl is so overpriced at this point. 
And there's something like a little, it feels like a bit of an affectation to me mm. at times because, you know, I didn't grow up with vinyl. It yeah. wasn't my generation. It's something I got into later on because I thought it was cool aesthetically. But like CDs and cassettes, that's actually like my generation. Uh, and it feels in a way, I don't want to say more pure, but it, I, I feel like less of a poser, I guess, yeah. with this stuff. <laughs> On top of like, I think all the pretensions of like vinyl culture, it, it's kind of turned me off uh, at this point. So maybe I'm rebelling against that on some level. But in any way, you still collect physical media or have you just gone purely streaming? Yeah, I was like such like an embarrassingly late adapter of the iPod. I would, you know, it was like 2004 and I would still try to be going to the gym, like hoping with my disc man, with a scratch copy of relationship of command, like hoping that it wouldn't skip <laughs> like that. Because like, I mean, I was, you know, 23, 20, I'm, you know, living in my own apartment. I'm 22, 23, some odd years old, like no money. And, you know, not like, not only did I like, you know, the tangible aspects of physical media, but like, I can't afford a nice couch. I can't afford art or furniture you're gonna tell me i gotta get rid of my cd rack which not only holds like all my treasured uh you know compact discs but like is easily the biggest nicest and most important piece of furniture in my in my apartment and um you know it's like i would think like you you can't really put a price on memories until i move from georgia to california at which point i'm like wait a minute it costs how much to move all these and then my parents, <laughs> I kept, I, I, I dropped them off at my parents' place and they donated them to like an army, like a military uh, donation bin. Like they tried to sell it back to Disco Round, but like so many of my CDs were burned. It must have been so mortifying. I'm going to use mortifying because, you know, my mom's Jewish. That's our word. Um, and yeah, she tried to like sell like burned CDs to like a used CD store. Like God bless her. Um, but yeah, nowadays it's like, you know, like you were saying, like vinyl to me, like I do so many, so like nearly all of my listening in either the car or on headphones or at the gym that like, I just can't fathom a reason that I would listen to vinyl aside from like the affectation. Now, granted, there are some like, you know, special collector's items, things that I own, like the deaf, like the Deftones 20th anniversary uh, one, the, um, you know, the bright eyes vinyl collection, like those, I just have, like, those are purely collector's items for the visual. But like, yeah, I think that CDs, man, it's like, like maybe what I could do, like if I save up a chunk of change, like I can actually recreate that CD rack from 2004, because I mean, it can't, cost it can't cost that much to like get all those, like, um, you get all those CDs again. You know, like, um, just go on Amazon and go on, like, a penny spending spree. Or go to eBay. I mean, that's where yeah. I get a lot of oh, CDs and cassettes. I mean, cassettes you can get for nothing. I mean, it, and that's something I feel like there's, there is this burgeoning uh, thing with cassettes where they are becoming more collectible. Obviously, yeah. like, in DIY scenes, that's yeah, been going on for, like, a while, like, where there's bands who will sometimes only put it out on cassette. Uh, if that might be the only physical format they put out that they put out anything at all. Um, to go back to your Deftones thing. You, know, you said you it was at the 20th anniversary of White Pony. Yeah, with got, with, with the Black Stallion remix. Because I have to say, like Deftones to me are such a CD band. That is a CD. You know, yeah, like, that is easily a CD uh, era <laughs> album. That is yeah, like, like White Pony is like a that, CD classic. Yeah, I mean it. It reminds me of that story about. Um, 
we might have talked about this already on the show, but there was that story uh, that about James Gandolfini, how he would listen to Dookie on vinyl yeah. on the set of The Sopranos. <laughs> and I'm just like, I love James Gandolfini, but yeah. it just seems pretentious to me to listen to Dookie on vinyl. That is a CD. Yeah. You know? that, that is the original format. The best is when like people like talk like they show off their their like uh, vinyl of like fifty cents get rich or die trying. It's like oh I guess this you know brings out the warmth and nuance of Bloodhound or High all the time. You know it's like well uh, it, yeah like I, it's just that thing of like albums that didn't originate on vinyl and yeah. now we're gonna put it on vinyl. That just seems so pretentious to me. It's like and yeah, it's not if my you're, money. If you're collecting. <laughs> If you're yeah, if you're collecting like jazz records from like the '60s and '70s, and you know that was the format it was intended to be heard on, it's like okay, I can get into that. But this thing of like vinyl is so pure that I have to put albums from the CD era, you know, on this like black wax. I don't know. I it just and I'm gonna pay like forty dollars for it. It just seems like lunacy to me. I, that market, I mean, it hasn't burst yet. And it doesn't seem like it will anytime soon. I mean, you would think that that bubble would have already burst. Nope. Um, but, you know, vinyl sales keep cre- creeping up. So, the kind you know, of, hey. The, the kind of people who would buy vinyl is like a renewable, endlessly renewable resource to me, you know? <laughs> yeah. And look, hey, whatever you like. Yeah. You know, do it. You know, I'm, I'm just saying my own opinion. But like, hey, however you want to listen to music, all that matters is that you're Doing what you love, so go with God. But uh, you know, I'm gonna stick with my wacky cassettes. I think they're pretty fun. Yeah. Um, let's get into the meat of our episode. Mm. We're revisiting the IndieCast Hall of Fame, and if you don't remember, we did this. I think a couple months ago, we did. Where Ian and I, we picked a couple albums that we feel like are really great and aren't discussed all that much it's the kind of record that i think you or i would maybe pitch for a pitchfork sunday review Uh we'd pitch it for a pitchfork sunday review and we we wouldn't feel confident that it would actually get accepted you know like it's those kind of records that are deserving but you know maybe they don't really get discussed in the critical conversation so ian and i are bringing them into the critical conversation on our show. So, uh, Ian, why don't you go first? What's, what's the first album you want to induct into the IndieCast <laughs> Hall of Fame? So we alluded to this one on the previous episode when we talked about CFCF's Memory Land, which is uh, science fiction by Uncle. So, uh, Uncle, yes. at, the be- at the beginning, it was a uh, collaboration between DJ Shadow and James Lavelle. Uh, James Lavelle, I believe, was the head of Moax Records, which... Um, one for the uh, for 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 the the people who were listening to vinyl on the in the nineties, let's just say. But um, so Uncle was like uh, this holds a special place in my heart because I think it was like the first album that I bought because of like actual hype. Like you know, I would he- I would hear singles before an album dropped or like you know get excited about albums because like I knew the artist. But nineteen ninety eight, I saw this album advertised and I. I just can't imagine like what useful memory this is knocked out of my brain. But I remember seeing this album promoted in the hot issue of Rolling Stone 1998 before I went to college. <laughs> and it's like, it sounded like the most exciting. Knew- I vaguely knew who DJ Shadow was because like my friends who were skaters in high school, like were listening to them. I didn't skate. They just listened to like both Mace and Aphex Twin. So those are the people I kicked it with. But, um, you know, I got the sense of like, wow, this sounds like a groundbreaking type of album. 
and I'm going to college. Like it's really time to expand my horizons. And so this was a just a big cavalcade uh, for electronica, but also like it's crossover with rock. So this album, science fiction, it had Tom York, it had Richard Ashcroft, it had uh, the Beastie Boys. Something I didn't know at the time, it had Badly Drawn Boy two years before Hour of Bewilderbeast. He was doing like a metal track. It had Cool G Rap. And um, it was just designed, it was designed as this huge event. And it was, and I, I, I kind of miss my ability to be, to have like that suspension of disbelief when I was 18 to, you know, like we were saying in the Kid A episode, how like people who were listening to Square Pusher and Aphex Twin and we're like 35 when Kid A came out, probably like, oh, this is just a ripoff right here. But for me, it's like, oh my God, like where else am I going to hear Cool G rap and Radiohead on the same album? This is the future. And now mind you, like there was no Spotify. All you really had going was, um, you know, your Winamp playlist. And um, this is an album to me, which is interesting to talk about in 2021. I mean, Uncle kept going without DJ Shadow. Um, I feel like I reviewed three of their albums at some point, but in 2021, it's this album that I feel is so IndieCast Hall of Fame because it somehow manages to be both extremely underrated and extremely overrated at the same time. Uh, yeah, I mean, it was overrated probably in its time, but now it, I, I think it is underrated. Yeah. And to speak to a point you were making earlier, this is a throwback to a time where it really did seem revolutionary. To have like a rapper and like an electronic artist and like a rock band on the same album, you know, and yeah. that was very much in the spirit of like the late '90s, where you know you have albums like Odele by Beck, yeah, of and course. like all the people that you know ripped that album off, very <laughs> self-conscious, uh, basically like white indie rock people bringing in other kinds of music in a very sort of like, we're not just a conventional rock band kind of yeah. way. Like it's, and uh, you know, the spirit of it, I think was in the right place in the moment. Looking back on it, it can seem a little corny now because yeah. these collaborations happen much more organically. Uh-huh. Uh, it's not, people aren't as self-conscious about it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I mean, there's some genuinely great songs. Oh, there's great songs. Like uh rabbit in your headlights, like by the one with Tom York, also like just incredible video. But I think what the reason it's kind of overrated and underrated now is that the songs that stick out, like first and foremost, the ones people talk about are like the bad ones, like the Beastie Boys one, which is like clearly like leftovers from Intergalactic. It's like, you know, the meme where like people sometimes do tweets in Beastie Boys voice where it's like, dun, 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 dun. like it's that's it's like it's like that song gone live and also Lonely Soul, like the one with Richard Ashcroft, like this is the point where like Richard Ashcroft goes from this like golden rock God of urban hymns to this kind of joke that he's become. And I, I think if you, oh, pre- if, if you press play on lonely soul right now, it won't end by the time this episode is over. I, I <laughs> have to strongly disagree. I actually, cause I saw in our outline, I saw you <laughs> clowning lonely, lonely soul. And I'm oh like, yeah. I remember, I remember loving that song. <laughs> so I listened to it this morning. I think that song is still really good. I, I like that. I think it's definitely, um, it's in the vein of like urban hymns, like those really long, you know, bittersweet symphony, like these epic ballads with like great string sections. It's in that vein. I'm a Twelve sucker for that. The false lyrics, endings. <laughs> the lyrics are terrible, but you know, <laughs> oh, yeah. that's okay. I don't mind that. I mean, you know, the drugs don't work. They just make you hurt. I mean, I think that was a lyric from 
Urban it's hymns. make you worse. Bad lyric. Oh my god. Am worse. I am I fact checking you on Verve lyrics, man? This is supposed to be like what a role reversal right here. Oh well, you know, look, it's it's early in the morning. Yeah. I, <laughs> I, I'm not as up on my Verve lyrics as maybe I should be. But at any rate, bad lyrics do not preclude me from liking Richard Ashcroft ballads. So I think that's why I still like Lonely Soul. Spoken like a true Oasis fan. <laughs> exactly. Just you know. Overindulgent late '90s Brit rock. Uh, yeah. It's always going to be close to my heart. Um, I'm going to talk about my first album that I want to induct into the IndieCast Hall of Fame, and it is uh, "Now Here Is Nowhere" by uh, Secret Machines. And I feel like this is a band that uh, is really popular in our world in the IndieCast sphere. But I feel yeah. like when people talk about early aughts, like that return of rock generation with the Strokes, Interpol, Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs, all those bands. Secret Machines doesn't get brought up, I I think, as much as they should be in that conversation. I feel like they're a little overlooked. I think this record in particular, which is their debut full-length album, is is really awesome. And uh, just a little background on Secret Machines, if you're not familiar, this band was originally from Dallas, Texas. They relocated to New York City. Um, it was a it was a power trio made up of uh, two brothers Brandon and Benjamin Curtis, and uh, a drummer Josh Garza. Uh, Benjamin uh, Curtis ended up leaving the band in uh, 2007 to start uh, the band School of Seven Bells. He later tragically died at the age of 35 in 2013 from cancer. Um, I feel like this is kind of a star-crossed band in a yeah. lot of ways. Like their first record comes out uh, and it does well. Critically, uh, they become this band that I think people look at as a potential, uh, almost like arena band, because they have this huge sound. There's references to you know bands like Led Zeppelin and Pink Floyd, but you know referencing our Greta Van Fleet conversation from last week, Secret Machines I think is an example of a band that drew on those influences without just slavishly imitating them. Like you yeah. could sense the essence of those bands, but they were taking it, I think, in a more sort of forward-moving direction. Um, and then they put out their second record in in, in 2006 called Ten Silver Drops, ah. which doesn't do as well. Oh. I actually like that record a lot. I almost wanted to talk about that album instead because that album is like really unheralded. Um, but uh, they put that album out, and then Benjamin Curtis leaves... Uh, after that record comes out, basically. Um, the thing about this record is that like, whenever I revisit it, I'm always just blown away by the drum sound Ooh, on this record yeah. and like just how big and full the drums sound. And I, I, I just feel like, why aren't more indie bands now just putting like huge fucking drums <laughs> on their records? You never hear really big drums anymore yeah. even on like like hardcore records or like you know records that are more pedal to the metal they don't have that same kind of roomy john bonham style just heft to them and it adds so much to this record uh it, it, because it has that classic rock thing it also has like a kraut rock space yeah. rock influence to it so it's spacey but it also has a lot of guts and and power to it uh, so yeah, if if you aren't familiar with this band or this record, I think you're going to be pleasantly surprised. I think, especially for that era, this is like a really powerful band. They yeah. were also like a great live band too. Mm-hmm. 
And uh, yeah, I just feel like they're one of those bands that like if things had gone a different kind of way, maybe they'd be playing arenas now mm-hmm. instead of being in a way a footnote in the history of like aughts era indie rock. Yeah, this is like a first ballot like mortal lock indie cast hall of fame to the point where maybe discussing 10 silver drops would have made it like a little bit more unheralded. But yeah, as far as I'm concerned, like this, there was like this kind of like a like offshoot of the new rock revolution, so to speak, that included Texas. It was like these guys trail of dead. And um, they were like a lot more like big, bold, like classic rock. I mean, this is like some straight up laser Floyd stuff at points. Like Led Zeppelin, like drums. And I mean, the fact that like one, you know, one of them went on to play for Interpol makes a lot of sense because they, you know, both extremely awesome low end. Um, And I just think that like they, they didn't really have a narrative behind them aside from like, hey, look, at these guys are huge Texas, um, you know, classic rock. And I don't think they ever projected the same aura of cool. Um, or just had the same kind of like personality forwardness as like Jack White or the AAS or even Interpol for that matter. Like Interpol, you still had like a really cool image of New York and, you know, being this like kind of down and out cokehead. Like the Secret Machines were just like a rock band. And I think it was just kind of difficult to place them in a greater narrative. And, you know, I like if you bring this album up, like you will it's a bat signal for people. Um, it's it's <laughs> exactly. just an it's just an awesome album that really doesn't have too many uh, like too many there there aren't there isn't much else like it. And um, if like you listen to IndieCast and you haven't heard this record, I, I, there's like almost no chance you will not love this. <laughs> oh yeah, you're gonna have a great weekend. Yeah. If, if you have not heard this record yet, you are gonna just you know. Put on put on like the biggest pair of headphones you have. Yeah. First wave you know. intact. I mean, that is just the one of the biggest. Take a gummy. Oh man, do some just some gummies and take a ride, man. You're gonna love this record. <laughs> the road leads where it's led. Amazing song. Sad and lonely. Great yeah. song. Um, yeah, good stuff. What's your next record? Yeah, speaking of bat signals, um, I almost have to apologize <laughs> in advance to you know emo Twitter if you're listening out there. Um, I'm going to talk about Saves the Day and Reverie, which I mean, th- those people would probably tell you that we need to dedicate like three consecutive episodes just to uh, parsing this album's uh, this album's history. So for all the people who need a little bit of background, so Saves the Day, uh, one of the definitive. Um, Bands from when emo was starting to break into alt rock radio in the late '90s, early 2000s, uh, through being cool, 1999 classic of the form, like classic, like New Jersey emo punk about being sad about girls, and then uh, "Stay What You Are" came out in 2001. That was the one with the big hit at your funeral. That was their oh shit, we're opening for Weezer in arenas album, and then two. Th- like many bands from that era, they get signed to DreamWorks. Um, and in 2003, they put out an album called In Reverie, which breaks from uh, the songs about, like, you know, sawing your girlfriend in half to be more like power pop almost, like a jellyfish album. Really complicated jazz chords, like really insane progressions, uh, surrealist lyrics, um, and... P- 
people hated it. Like it, this entire era, like I talked about Woodwater in the previous uh, Hall of Fame. This is along the same lines, like that album, The Anniversaries, Your Majesty, Fire Theft, like all these emo bands from like the late 90s and early 2000s, like started kind of making indie rock records or at least, you know, like indie as it's understood as alt rock. And the old fans hated it because it wasn't punk. It wasn't emo. And none of them ended up selling a lot of records either. And so... Um, you know, Get Up Kids on a Wire, I put on there as well. And the thing about this album that makes it so fascinating is Saves the Day kept going. Like, a lot of these records from that era were actual career killers. Um, and in a way, like, this was the end of Saves the Day's, uh, I don't want to say imperial phase. What happened is, <laughs> the, what happened is, like, when DreamWorks got merged into Universal, uh, you know, a band like Jimmy World got, you know, they, they moved to Interscope, but like Saves the Day got dropped. Like they were one of the many bands who fell by the wayside after that merger. And, um, you know, what's happened with this album over the years is it's gone from like, you know, fuck this album forever to you get like these people piping up like myself. Like, hey, actually, this album's like pretty good. And then I think now you'll have like, like in Reverie Hive, which will say like, hey, this is clearly the best Saves the Day album. You know, like it's the complete outlier in their discography. As a matter of fact, after this one, they course corrected real hard and started making uh, hardcore records on Equal Vision again. Um, I remember interviewing Ben from Tiger's Jaw, and he said that In Reverie is his favorite album of all time. Like all records, this one's his favorite. And, um, you know, I think that like a lot of albums like this are really interesting to revisit now because they kind of predicted... Um, what might have happened in 2014 where like people who are in indie rock or alt rock have to reckon with the fact that like, you know, these aren't just like dumbass punk kids who like don't listen to any other music, but they have interests outside of that. And, you know, this is a real bold, daring album, you know, especially for their major label debut. Um, I think it really stands out because, you know, it does have some very, you know, complex chords. It does have some interesting uh, structures, but um, it also still has that emo-ness to it, like the first song, Anywhere With You, uh, where it doesn't sound like the way power pop can be like kind of overly clever or stuffy. Um, it's, yeah, it's just fascinating, fascinating time capsule, but also a really good record. Steve, have you ever heard this record? I have never heard this record. I don't even know if I've heard any Saves the Day records. Mm. So I, I I feel like if our relationships if our relationship's going to continue on this show that I should probably dig deep into saves the day at uh, some point so we so we don't have an indie cast divorce uh, down the road so I'll I'll look into that I'll put that on my to do list um, that was an extremely Ian Cohen induction into the indie cast Hall of Fame and now I'm going to do an extremely uh, Stephen Hyden induction into the indie cast Hall of Fame uh, the record is Megaphone by the band megaphon if you're not familiar with this band it's made up of two brothers again i guess i have a brother thing in this episode this wasn't intentional but you have two brothers brad cook and phil cook uh along with drummer joe westerlund this was a band that formed in the wake of a band called dearmond edison breaking up and Mm. if you know that band it's probably because you're familiar with bonnie vare and justin vernon and the whole origin story of the first uh, Bonnie Vare record for Emma Forever Ago. Basically, D. Edison broke up. 
he went back to Wisconsin, went to the log cabin, wrote those songs, and the rest is history. Well, part of the rest is history part is that the other three people in that band formed Megaphon. And this was a band that never got as popular, obviously, as Bonnie Bear. But they were... I, for me, they were like my, one of my favorite live bands to see in the late aughts. Uh, a band that I think in a lot of ways, like Secret Machines, I, seems a little star-crossed to mm. me. They also seem like maybe they were like a little ahead of their time. Uh, you know, They were combining indie rock influences with folk and free jazz and also jam band influences. Um, apparently, like the Cooks met Westerlund at the Horde Festival in 1997. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I remember, see, I went to school in Eau Claire. Uh, I went to college there in the late 90s. And I remember that there was a band called Mount Vernon that these guys were in, including Justin Vernon. And they were very much like a horde type band. You could actually go on YouTube and see them playing in a battle of the bands. It sounds kind of like Dave Matthews' band uh, at that time. Um, but uh, Megaphone, yeah, they were just an incredible live band, very unpredictable in some ways, a lot like a band we talked about recently, Akron Family. Uh, it, in that same vein, you know, Megaphone was from North Carolina. They had that Southern quality to them, uh, that Southern stoner quality, but again, very progressive musically. And, you know, I wonder if maybe if they had been based in Brooklyn and associated with like the Grizzly Bears and animal collectives of the world, if maybe things would have gone differently for them if they could have been, as you said, with Secret Machines, them not really having a narrative. I feel like Megaphon fell through the cracks in that way. Um, the self-titled album uh, that I'm talking about here, it came out in 2011, and it felt like, in a way for them, like their stab at like a big mainstream record, or at least mainstream as they would define it. Because if you listen to like earlier records of theirs, like Gather, Form, and Fly... They're very weird, very experimental, whereas the self-titled record has fairly straightforward songs. There's, there's songs on this record that almost sound like Grateful Dead homages, which in 2011 was definitely out of fashion. And I feel like that would probably go down differently now than it did back then. Um, it's interesting because based on what I've read about Megaphone, I was under the assumption that they broke up, but they apparently didn't? they're... Well, they're on the the uh, they're like on an indefinite hiatus. Ah. So I think they're, they've left the door open of maybe getting back together. But it's been um, almost a decade now. I think they went on hiatus in in, in twenty twelve. Mm. And uh, as far as like the relevance of this band now, I would say that probably the most lasting impact is Brad Cook, uh, one of the members. He's become like this really in demand producer in the indie rock world he was the guy he produced waxahachie saint cloud uh, to much acclaim he was an executive producer of a deeper understanding by the war on drugs i'm not uh. sure exactly what that means i know <laughs> that he was in the studio a lot and really helped yeah uh, make that record so you can you can see the impact of like what these guys did in terms of just integrating all these different kinds of music and just having like really great sounding records that have i think the the feel of like older, more vinyl bound music, but also a progressive edge to them where they're constantly pushing the envelope and trying to do different kinds of things. Yeah. So um if you're into the indie jam world and you haven't heard this record, I think you will really like it. This is an unsung band uh that I think is worthy of reinvestigation. So Megaphone by Megaphone. <laughs> 
Yeah, and for me, man, it's like I, I, I like this band as well. Like you mentioned, like maybe if they were from like Brooklyn or whatever, or like maybe they'd be like more popular now. It's like I don't know, man. Is anyone excited about anything anymore? But I think of Megathon because in two thousand nine, like that was the record I was into, the one with like the forest on the cover that had guns on it. That I used right. to, that closed out a 2009 mix that I made. Um, just had like a lot of classics from that year, you know, Daylight, Matt and Kim, uh, Crown on the Ground, and like, yeah, Megaphone. Like, they did fit into that, um, you know, maybe like the more artsy folk indie rock realm. But I think that, um, yeah, they're a band I'm like really interested in revisiting. Um, yeah, I, did, I do think in some ways they got kind of buried by Bon Iver, but also like kind of buoyed. It's like, well, as long as Megaphone exists, like or as long as they exist, they, they get that tie and that association. So, um, yeah, I think that's, you know, like Akron family, um, a lot, a lot to, a lot to rediscover there. So that's it then for our Indie Cast Hall of Fame. We have four new albums in there. I look forward to inducting uh, more albums. You know, you brought up Trail of Dead before. Have oh. we not inducted a Trail of Dead album yet? I'm, I'm surprised that that hasn't happened. Worlds apart, like, I almost feel like we would have to just do the entire episode about that and get Riley on here. Like, they're... they're oh, man. Yeah, Worlds Apart is, like, that... I just can't really do it. It's 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 there. It's always in the periphery. But it's like, when do I pull out the big guns, you know? Yeah, I don't know. Like, that's, like, the controversial exclusion so far i think if there's going to be people uh protesting yeah the hall of fame it's going to be like where's trail of dead so hopefully we can rectify that yeah. in the near future all right we've now reached the part of our episode that we call recommendation corner where ian and i recommend something that we're into this week ian why don't you go first all right, so I want to give a shout-out to Hugo Reyes. Um, he made a four-part series about, like, uh, Chicago emo, Chicago's uh, role in emo revival, like, d- dating back to 2004 and to current day. And in the most recent one, um, he brought up this artist called Snow Ellet. That's, like, the word snow, last name, E-L-L-E-T. And... It's, you know, and he brought that up and there's been some argument about like, is this emo pop? Is this Brooklyn indie rock? Uh, One of my favorites, I Love Your Lifestyle, says it sounds like the Tough Alliance playing emo music. It's called Suburban Indie Rockstar and there is that kind of clever uh, power pop self-awareness to it. It's kind of like an origin story. Um, But more or less... If you like the stuff I typically recommend in this part of our show, if you w- like, man, it's been two years since the last Oso Oso album. I wonder when they're going to drop again. This is going to be the album that like really uh, justifies giving you 10 minutes of your time. It's five songs, 11 minutes, like all my favorite emo albums of 2021. It's less than 15 some odd minutes. And just really, really, like really catchy songs um, with, you know, the drum machine. Just sounds like bedroom pop. Uh, it could come from Chicago. It could come from Philly. It could come from Portland. I'm really looking forward to seeing where this guy takes things going forward. I had a strong feeling that you would talk about this in Recommendation Corner. Mm-hmm. And I'm glad you did because I, I like this a lot, too. Yeah. It's a very fun record. You mentioned Oso Oso. It's definitely in that similar kind of 
late 90s early 2000s pop rock vein just sound just really good songs it seems like a little more lo-fi than Oso Oso. oh absolutely but but really but just like really good catchy fun songs really well timed with the time of the year that Mm. we're in right now just good springtime music um my recommendation is kind of in the same vein it's uh this uh, artist named uh, Pronoun. Yes. It's a, it's a project by uh, the singer-songwriter named Elise Valturo. Uh, just this week, she announced her uh, upcoming EP that's coming out in June. It's called OMG, I Made It. And she released uh, a new single called I Want to Die But I Can't Because I Gotta Keep Living. Great song. Extremely 1975 energy. I love it. Yeah, it's a great song. Um, I've heard the whole EP. I really like it a lot. This actually isn't even my favorite song on the record. Uh, like the first track on that EP is so good, mm. but yeah, it's just it's just tons of bangers on there. Again, similar to the Snow Ellet recommendation, this is just like really well written, shiny pop rock songs that are catchy as hell. Yeah. Uh, not not much else fuss to it. it. You know, you can just enjoy it. Uh, as just pure like ear candy, and I'll I'll say that if you aren't familiar with Pronoun's self-titled album, which I believe came out two years ago, I think that was 2019. It's actually called it's "I'll like, Show You Stronger." That's the album from. I'll the show two. you stronger. That's yeah. the name of it. I'm sorry. Yeah, but that record that that's that's an awesome record. She opened for Jimmy Eat World, and that makes a lot of sense to me. Absolutely, yeah, definitely in that same again. Emo rock. Yeah, emo scented power Shiny pop. pop. Yeah. <laughs> really good stuff. I'll show you stronger. If you haven't heard that record, uh, definitely check that out. And also check out the new single too. The EP drops in June. I'm sure we'll give it a shout out at that time as well. But I just wanted to put that on your radar. Really great EP to look forward to. So that wraps up this episode of IndieCast. Thank you for listening to this episode. We'll be back with more news and reviews and hashing out trends next week. And if you're looking for more music recommendations, sign up for the Indie Mixtape Newsletter. You can go to uprocks.com backslash indie, and I recommend five albums per week, and we'll send it directly to your email box. (laughs) 